0: Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and I hope all of you are in the mood for a little bit of Bradbury, two episodes after the last Bradbury, although this time he's only responsible for the short story, not the teleplay. The teleplay was written by Mel Donnelly, whom we'll get to a little bit later on, but we have three important items to deal with first. Two of them are actors. The episode stars Claude Rains a bonafide movie star, in the last decade of his career. And it co-stars Charles Bronson, a future bonafide movie star, in the first decade of his career. So that's the three things, right? Reigns, Bronson, Bradbury? Well, no, because we talked plenty Bradbury two episodes ago, so we're not going to say much about him this time. The third item is ventriloquism, because the Ryabuchinska of the title, And So Died Ryabuchinska, is a ventriloquist dummy. There is, as I'm sure you all know, a whole tradition of creepy ventriloquism stories. And part of the reason for that is that there's a whole creepy history of ventriloquism. In his Atlas Obscura article, The Demonic Origins of Ventriloquism, Andy Wright notes that ventriloquism dates back at least to classical Greece. He says, Back then ventriloquists were called engastromyths, writes Stephen Connor in his book Dumbstruck, a cultural history of ventriloquism. This was a mashup of N in Gaster, the stomach, and mythos, word or speech. Basically, people believed engastromiths had demons in their stomachs, who belched words from their hosts' mouths. Angastromiths plied their trade for entertainment and as divination. Pioneering ventriloquist Valentine Vox writes in his book, I Can See Your Lips Moving, The History and Art of Ventriloquism, that the art's roots lie in necromancy, the ancient art of allowing a dead person's spirit to enter the necromancer and speak to the living. Fast forward a couple centuries, and the voices from nowhere became associated with another unpopular trend, possession and witchcraft both circumstances that tended to come with a lot of vocal acrobatics. Not surprisingly, this didn't mean great things for ventriloquists. During the Reformation, there was a nun named Elizabeth Barton in Kent, whose ventriloquial prophecies were well known. But when she uttered a supposedly divine statement that King Henry VIII shouldn't marry Anne Boleyn, her popularity plummeted with the audience that mattered most, the king. Barton was hanged. Henry got married. Andy Wright goes on to say Christianity took a particularly dim view of ventriloquism in the 16th century, when witch trials swept through Europe, believing it was to be regarded a practice spawned by hell itself, according to Valentine Vox. Disgruntled God-fearers believed mysterious voices emanated from any number of holes in the ventriloquist's body, from the vagina to the nostrils. Sometimes even other animals found their way into the body an account of the possession of a boy in 1500s England, declared baying hounds, could be heard in his stomach. By the 18th century, ventriloquists were largely cleared of demonic dealings, and performers started drawing large European audiences. But people still looked askance at them. They could be tricksters, after all. An alarmed citizen wrote a letter to the New York Times in 1910, decrying the popularity of mediums who purported to speak to the dead, Scofflaws the writer called trumpet mediums for a trick in which ghosts spoke through musical instruments and other means. The trumpet medium, declared the concerned party, has as her confederate both men and women who are ventriloquists. According to Andy Wright, it isn't until the end of the 19th century that ventriloquists used dummies through which to speak. So in the 20th century, we're not really dealing with ventriloquists as... Demonic, or even as tricksters who are trying to bilk us in some way. We know what they're doing, and we know it's for entertainment's sake. But there's still something unnerving about it, particularly those dummies. Andy Wright quotes Broadway critic Walter Kerr, who wrote of a 1977 Greenwich Village cabaret act which featured ventriloquism Do you realize what an ominous presence a ventriloquist dummy can be, often is? And part of the reason ventriloquist dummies are an ominous presence, it's also part of their appeal, is that they are unrestrained and can say what the ventriloquist himself cannot. So it becomes a safe form of anarchy that we can appreciate. Because another aspect of the appeal is that we all know that the ventriloquist and the dummy are one and the same. So even as we admire the humor, if it's a comedy act, we mainly admire the technique. Which is one reason, I suppose, why Edgar Bergen was a hugely successful ventriloquist in the 1930s on the radio. He first appeared on the Rudy Valley show, where Rudy felt obligated to introduce him with this disclaimer. Why? People have been asking me for the last two days. Why
1: put a ventriloquist on the air? The answer is, why not? True, our ventriloquist, Edgar Bergen, is an unusual one sort of Noel Coward or perhaps Fred Allen among ventriloquists. A dexterous fellow who depends more upon the cleverness and wit of his material than upon the believe it or not nature of his delivery. At Elsa Maxwell's most recent star-spangled party, the local smart set went smartly mad over Mr. Bergen, and currently he is entertaining the white-tie folks at the Rainbow Room. Mr. Bergen works with a dummy, several of them in fact, but this one is a typical ventriloquist dummy except that it is arrayed in top hat and tails. Just imagine the dummy and take my word for it that both voices you will hear are owned and operated by just one man. Edgar Bergen.
0: Here's part of Edgar Bergen's act from that Rudy Valley radio show. Tell me,
1: Uh, is your mother living yet? No, uh, not yet. Not yet. No, No, she isn't. Well, what is the name, if I may ask? Uh, the name? Yes. Uh, well, uh, now uh, now that I have money... I see. It's uh, Denby. Denby. Oh, yes. Denby. I'm one of the Fishwell Denbys. Oh, I see. One of the uh, Walton and the Thames uh, Fishwell Denbys. Oh. <laughs> well, you must be from the other side. Oh, definitely. Yes. But way on the other side. Yes. Of, uh, yes. of the tracks. I'm... sorry. <laughs> you like it over in england oh it's simply marvelous <laughs> i imagine so yes yes well what do you like most of all uh i love to go uh, grouse hunting in the scottish uplands uh, i see grouse hunting yes it's such fun shooting i suppose so oh yes i go every autumnal you do mm-hmm. well did you have any luck this fall shooting oh definitely oh fine <laughs> the very first day out i uh I got three cocker spaniels. Oh, you did. <laughs> and uh, the second day, I uh, I got a horse. A horse. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, and uh, my host. And your host. Yes. Uh, uh, I don't miss a darn thing. I notice that. If it moves, I shoot. I shoot. <laughs> Oh, it's good fun. I imagine so. Yes. Well, young man, I don't believe you were grouse shooting. You don't? No. And I don't believe you were over in England. Oh, come, come now. Don't be a twerp. Well, I... do. <laughs> you don't believe me? I don't believe you. Uh-huh. And I don't believe your name is Demby. Oh, you don't? No. That's embarrassing. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, I see it is. It is. I don't believe you. You don't believe me? Huh? I don't believe you. Uh-huh. Well, heck, I tried. Yes, I know. (laughs) So what is it? Uh, Charlie McCarthy. Oh, I see.
0: (laughs) You can tell from that clip what a mischievous character Charlie McCarthy is. And that mischievousness, alongside Edgar Bergen's affable straight man, had people almost feeling like Charlie was a real person. That gets emphasized throughout the 20-year history of Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy on the radio when Charlie flirts with Mae West and has a long-standing feud with W.C. Fields. And that feeling that the audience may have, not being able to see him, that Charlie McCarthy is a real person, exemplifies another aspect of ventriloquism, which is the whole notion that the ventriloquist is not really in control of the dummy, that in fact they may really be two separate individuals. We can see that in still a comedic fashion when ventriloquist J. Johnson plays both Chuck and Bob on the TV comedy series Soap. Uh,
2: Chuck, I'd like to meet my wife, Mary, and her two boys, uh, Danny and Jody.
0: Hi.
3: Okay, I don't need this. I'm leaving. Well,
4: he didn't see you. I
3: love that. I didn't fly 6,000 miles to be stiff.
4: <laughs>
3: I really don't need this aggravations in the lower middle class. Hey! <laughs> Dad, could you say hi to him? I think his feelings are hurt. Sure Hey,
2: Bob, nice to see you again Did you ever say anything like that?
5: No, apologize Apologize? Well, for ignoring him
2: Hey, I'm sorry (laughs) Hey, Bob, come on, Bob I'm sorry for ignoring
5: you like that It's just that (laughs) I was so happy to see Chuck here, you know (laughs) Uh, would you like a drink? Uh, no, thanks. Okay, then I'll have one.
3: Did anyone else notice I wasn't introduced to the rest of the family? What is it? My skin's different? I'm not good enough? Oh, of course you are. Hi, Bob. I'm Mary. Hi, Mary. And this is Danny.
4: How are you?
3: Hi, Dan. And that's Jody. Hello, Jody. Hi.
0: A more recent example of this comes when Liz Lemon goes to check out the show by Rick Wayne and Pumpkin, played by ventriloquist Jeff Dunham, in an episode of 30 Rock.
6: Good evening, everyone. How y'all doing? Hey, first time doing this? I'm sorry. I didn't know it was filthy, thin-lipped hooker night here at the Laugh Factory. Wow, okay. I underestimated you. Knock, knock. Who's there, pumpkin? A ferret-faced skank!
0: (laughs) Yep, I see her too! And this notion that an unrestrained ventriloquist dummy can demean people shows up in such things as Martin Mull's song, Ventriloquist Love.
6: Ventriloquist love? It ain't such a groove. Whenever I kiss you, darling, your lips never move. But last night at that party, you threw it all away. Oh, I'll never live down, honey. The things you forced me to say. You made a pass at every guy. Lord, I wanted just to curl up and die. Cause you made the words come from me. Now I can't look them in the eye.
0: And then there's the cover of Van Morrison's 2018 album in which he is shown with a ventriloquist dummy on his knee, while Van's finger is up to his mouth, as if shushing the dummy. The name of the album is The Prophet Speaks.
6: When the prophet speaks, mostly no one listens. When the prophet speaks, and no one hears. Only those who have ears to listen. Only those who are trained to hear.
0: And I have no idea if that cover is supposed to be some sort of commentary or just good old creepy fun. But it does show that ventriloquist dummies still have an effect on us today.
6: When the prophet speaks no one listens When the prophet speaks Mostly no one hears. only those that are trained to listen only those who have ears to care.
0: Okay, so we have plenty of examples of a dummy's independence, rudeness, and manipulation in comedic situations. But what about when the dummy seems to take over? seems to dominate the ventriloquist. Or worse yet, seems independent of the ventriloquist, whether it's in the ventriloquist's mind or not. That's when we slide from comedy into horror. The first film of this type is The Great Gabo*, released in 1929. It deals with a ventriloquist who goes mad and ends up speaking only through his puppet Otto. There are large sections in this film of the ventriloquist act as if just showing the novelty of such an act to a film audience is sufficient to take the time to do it. May I present to you Otto, the famous Otto,
2: my other half. Half? How you get like this? Three quarters you mean? What do I think you're entirely too modest? Well, I'm right. I'm the act, not you. Hello, kid. How are you fixed for steady company?
1: <laughs>
5: That's enough.
2: If I were you, I'd keep quiet. All right. Shut up. What's that? You said if you were me, you'd keep quiet. So shut up. You are
7: me.
0: 1945 brings us the British horror anthology film, Dead of Night, including the segment, The Ventriloquist Dummy, with a ventriloquist, played by Michael Redgrave, convinced that his dummy is alive. Suppose I tell him the truth. Suppose I tell him that
8: you
7: made me do it. Try it and see what happens. They'll put you in the madhouse, but not little Hugo. Oh, no.
1: I'm going to team up with Sylvester. Maybe we'll come and visit you. You know. Private show for the loonies.
0: That story was also the basis for the pilot episode of the radio series Escape, first broadcast on March 21st, 1947, and featuring Art Carney as the voice of the dummy Toby.
5: We can't go on. What? We can't. It's quite impossible. What nonsense is this? He hears the dancers going on. Toby. Them. Toby, he refuses to talk. Toby, you're dummy? Yes, I can't get a word out of him and what is this? A rib? Certainly not. Well, you're a ventriloquist, aren't you? At least you were last night.
1: <laughs> Let the customers talk and hold hands. Huh? The stage is just as empty and we on it. Toby, and what the devil
0: you
2: are.
1: Go on, go on, Bigelow. Get out there and tell them we're not appearing.
2: So your dummy
5: won't talk, won't he? It's the very first time he's broken all evening, I swear it.
0: Twilight Zone presented two ventriloquist stories in its five-year history. First, the disturbing The Dummy, starring Cliff Robertson.
8: You know what it is you've been told. Often, endlessly, up to my craw and overflowing. Schizophrenia, I know it by heart. Patient feels helpless and manipulated by forces outside of his control. I can give it to you frontwards, backwards, in again, out again, again, in three different languages. It's like a well-rehearsed off-color gag. Patient goes from himself to a lifeless dummy and then is unable to separate himself from the dummy. Oh, that's all very psychiatric and erudite and worth about two and a half bucks a word, but it's not right. It's not right. I told them that. I tell you that. It's no more schizophrenia paranoia than
5: his athletes foot, or a head cold. Well, he's alive! He's a dummy! Ah. He's a block of wood! Look at it!
0: And the far less interesting Caesar and Me, starring Jackie Cooper, using the same dummy that Cliff Robertson used.
8: Is that
2: all you want
8: out of life? I guess so. You're a clod. A real clod. I try. I give it my best. Your best stinks. On the name of heaven, Caesar, I've had enough. I'm the one that's had enough, get that through your head.
0: And then there's the Batman villain Scarface, first introduced in 1988 in Detective Comics number 583. He's a gang boss, but he's also a dummy, controlled by the mostly silent Ventriloquist. Scarface and the Ventriloquist have appeared in a number of DC Comics animated adventures, including Batman the Animated Series in 1993.
4: Who's the traitor?
2: The
0: ventriloquist.
4: No, no, he's lying! Shut up, you blockhead! What did you say? It wasn't me! I didn't say that! My lips didn't move! So what? You're a ventriloquist!
0: And in the live-action, pre-Batman television series, Gotham. Tie-hole!
6: This the one you were telling me about? Yes, sir. That's Mr. Cobblepot. Thank. Show these two doctors we're serious! Forgive me.
1: Arthur,
4: what do you want? He wants your treasure. And to be boss.
5: Really? The the, the dummy wants to be the boss of Gotham. Bingo!
0: The website toplessrobot.com has a list of the 10 creepiest ventriloquist tales of all time. Number 10 is the 1985 film Making Contact. According to Topless Robot, it features a young boy named Joey, whose father dies, and he immediately begins acting strangely and claims to be talking to his dad on a toy phone, which will sound very familiar to watchers of the Twilight Zone. In a completely unrelated note in the story, the ghost of an evil magician and his dummy Fletcher arrive on the scene and start messing with Joey's life as if he doesn't have enough going on. Fletcher the dummy sounds like Tom Waits and can shoot lightning out of his glass eyes. But in a twist, it turns out Fletcher is only trying to protect Joey from the evil magician. Number nine is Dead Silence, which, according to Andy Wright, is from the creators of the Saw franchise, and features an evil ventriloquist who turns human victims into marionettes. Number eight is Devil Doll, which Topless Robot calls a hilariously bad horror film, that features one of the most outlandish ventriloquist tales ever. The great Varelli is more than a master of voice, with a doll on his knee. The man studied voodoo, and can make women fall in love with him by just opening his mouth. Hugo, his dummy, possibly a nod to the dummy in Dead of Night, can do remarkable things like walk around on his own, and mysteriously Varelli locks him up in a steel cage at night. This is a film that was savaged by Mike Nelson and the Bots on Mystery Science Theater 3000.
3: Hugo,
2: put down the knife.
4: Yeah, I'll put it down on your thigh. How about that? I
2: said,
3: put it down.
4: Look familiar, Mike? (laughs) It may,
3: soon. (laughs) You
4: know, you frightened
2: the ladies.
0: Number seven is Black Devil Doll from Hell. Topolus Robot calls it one of the most awful and offensive movies ever. But it does have the memorable line, You Number six is the Tales from the Crypt episode, The Ventriloquist Dummy, starring Don Rickles as a ventriloquist with a nasty secret.
6: a myth. Morty's like me. He's real. He's flesh and blood. In fact, Morty is my brother. <laughs> <laughs> my brother. He's dead.
4: Here's
3: Morty. Ah,
4: we were born like this. I guess we were meant to be twins, but nature can work in a cruel way sometimes. Rather than go through life as freaks, we decided on a career in show business.
3: Yeah, we decided to put our heads together.
0: Number five is The Great Gabo. Number four is The Dummy from The Twilight Zone. Number three is The Glass Eye, episode one of season three of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, the episode for which Robert Stevens won an Emmy Award as Best Director, and which I'm not going to talk about right now. Number two is Dead of Night, and number one is Richard Attenborough's 1978 film Magic, Starring a young Anthony Hopkins. Right now, you, you
8: gotta let me help you. I know a lot of people. Beautiful doctors.
1: He means head shrinkers. He just thinks they are a fruitcake. He doesn't. He never said that. He's on our side. He's the film. Don't forget that. Never forget that.
8: Hey, kid. I'm gonna ask you to do something. It's, it's a little something anybody ought to be able to do. Now, if you can do it, fine. We'll forget this whole thing. But if you can't, we'll think about getting you to see somebody fast. Is it the deal? Name it. Make fat shut up for five minutes.
0: Needless to say, he can't do it. So that's the list. But where is Ryabuchinska? Is Bachinska not on the list because it's a bad episode? No. It's actually, I think, a terrific episode. But it's not on the list because it's not a horror story. It's a whole different animal altogether. And with that, I think we can finally let Hitch have his say. When the camera pans to him, he is initially out of focus. But he is clear by the time he says his name. And in this intro, he has no props. Good evening.
2: This misty bit of ectoplasm forming on the inside of your television screen is one Alfred Hitchcock coming to you from across that great barrier that divides the quick from the dead, the Atlantic Ocean. I have materialized for the express purpose of warning you that during tonight's seance, you will witness a playlet entitled And So Died Bashinska." Oh, yes. Before we have our play, I would like to make an announcement to those of you who can't stay until the end.
0: The butler did it. A couple of things here. First of all, you'll note that Hitch refers to the title character as...
2: Ryabushinska.
0: But in the episode, Claude Rains and others refer to her as... Ryabushinska. The pronunciation seems to fluctuate back and forth between those two in the various incarnations of this story. I've gone back and forth myself. So I think you can take your pick. Just as long as you don't pronounce it the way this poor guy did on this suspense radio program.
5: Tonight starring Joseph Perns, Lorreen Tuttle, Wally Mayer, and Armana Feige, and Rio Bushinski, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Shenley by William Spear.
0: He was probably down on himself for blowing that, and everyone probably told him, Don't worry. No one's going to remember it, and here I am bringing it up over 70 years later. The other thing concerns Hitch's intro itself. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, lists two opening narratives for this episode. They are very similar to each other, but neither one of them is the intro that we heard. In both, they have marked down that Alfred appears as a ventriloquist, but they don't expound and exactly how that's done here's the first one good evening this misty bit of ectoplasm forming on the inside of your television tube is one alfred hitchcock i have materialized for the purpose of warning you that following a word from our dear patron we shall present tonight's story entitled and so died ria that is all i have to say just now but don't be alarmed i shall return Old television actors never die. They only fade away. The alternate narrative is, Good evening. This misty bit of ectoplasm forming on the inside of your television tube is one Alfred Hitchcock. We shall present tonight's story entitled, And So Died Bashinska." That is all I have to say just now. But don't be alarmed, I shall return. Old television actors never die. They only fade away. Now, the intro that we have has this telltale line.
2: Coming to you from across that great barrier that divides the quick from the dead, the Atlantic Ocean.
0: And since Hitch, at this point in time, lived in the United States, I suspect that this intro is for the European audience. There'll be more shenanigans in the outro, but we'll get to that. So here, at last... Is And So Died Rio First broadcast February 12, 1956. Starring Claude Rains. Teleplay by Mel Donelli. Based on a story by Ray Bradbury. And directed by Robert Stevenson. This is Robert Stevenson's fourth episode after Don't Come Back Alive, The Long Shot, and our previous episode, The Derelicts. He has three more, and his next is There Was an Old Woman, episode 25. And while we're at it, let's get Ray Bradbury out of the way, too. You may recall that he wrote the story and teleplay for Shopping for Death, episode 18. He has three more Alfred Hitchcock Presents and two more Alfred Hitchcock Hours. His next is Designed for Loving, episode 6 of season 4. So we won't see Ray again for a while. The scene opens in the alley of a theater. There's a poster there advertising all the acts, and it says, Signor Tetrazzini, world-famous juggler, Bonzo the Tramp and his educated dogs, famous European canine act, Tony and Rosina, acrobats extraordinary, Fabian, internationally famous ventriloquist, Lottie Bauer, chorus, girls, girls, girls. There's a rousing finale like something out of the circus playing in the background. As a woman walks by heading for the stage door, her high heels clicking on the sidewalk as she walks. She enters.
1: Hi, Maisie. Bean as usual. I see you're improving your mind again.
2: Yeah,
0: like you do with those confession books you
8: read.
1: We're both intellectuals, Pop.
0: Pop, as she calls him, is reading a comic book. And the two of them proceed to have a conversation as there's all sorts of activity behind them. Showgirls, men in tuxedos, men in gold lame vests. The music continues in the background. We're backstage at a variety show and there's all sorts of hubbub going on. Maisie has a lucky silver dollar. Pop wants to flip her for it, but Maisie doesn't want to lose her lucky silver dollar. So she suggests...
1: I'll match you with it, and if I lose, I'll give you a quarter. Okay. Who's matching who and who's
2: paying? I'm matching you, and if things go according to schedule, I'll probably pay for it.
1: Go on, you made a dollar off me already this week.
0: (laughs) Maisie is played by Iris Adrian. She was raised in Los Angeles by a single mother, graduated from Hollywood High School, and won the title of Miss Lake Arrowhead in 1929. She worked for the Ziegfeld Follies, and performed with bandleader Fred Waring before entering films at the end of the silent era. Then she started appearing as an extra or a chorus girl in early sound films like Paramount on Parade. During the 30s, she specialized in playing hard-boiled, glamorous gold diggers and gangster malls. This is from IMDb. Sugar, Pepper, Pearl, Sunny, Goldie, Bubbles. All those are nicknames borne by petite actress Iris Adrian in several of the 160 movies she made. With such names, don't expect to see her playing Joan of Arc or Electra. but it remains that all these pet names reflect her winning femininity, its sweetness, its spiciness, its radiance. Once more, their funny overtones are telltale signs of Iris Adrian's own quick, witty sense of humor. Sexy, yes, but with a sharp tongue. This aspect of her personality helped her to evolve and last, changing from the roles of blonde corines, or waitresses, or, on the wilder side, of streetwalkers and other gangsters' malls, to colorful bit parts in comedies with Ebony Costello, Jerry Lewis, and Elvis Presley. In the 1960s, she was in a number of Walt Disney films, including several by our director here, Robert Stevenson, who was quoted as saying that she was his good luck charm. Here she is as a young actress in Gold Diggers of 1937.
8: Hello, dear. I want my luggage, if you please.
1: She wants her luggage. Aren't you going back with us? Oh, dear, no. I couldn't think of riding on that beastly train. I hate trains. She hates trains. Take them over to the car like a good man. Yes, miss. Harry ran up for me, you know. She'd wear that coat if it killed her. You know,
7: six months ago, she was working for a seamstress. Now she's engaged to a broker.
0: The Elvis Presley film that she's in is Blue Hawaii. The Jerry Lewis film she's in is The Errand Boy.
7: My love. My love.
2: And here's to a fond farewell, my love.
3: For we shall never meet again. At least in this world. But if my prayers are answered. Maybe we will meet, in the world beyond.
4: Farewell. Goodbye.
6: Lovely, lovely. You were more magnificent than I've ever seen you on a
1: stage. You're just brilliant, brilliant. Thank you, Jason. I thought it was rather tender.
0: And here's a medley of her Disney performances from That Darn Cat, The Love Bug, The Apple Dumpling Gang, and Freaky Friday.
7: I
5: can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming in.
7: Never mind the snow job. There are three people living in this apartment, and that'll cost you... Twenty bucks! Hey, knock it off, will you, sis? I ain't saying this is the classiest joint in town, but we gotta draw the line somewhere. Come on, back in your seat. Why don't you go up to Seabreeze Point? Fuzz don't bother you much up there.
6: Thanks.
1: Kids. Yick. What's with her? Something wrong with her noggin? How would I know? I've never seen her
6: before in my life.
0: Sadly, Iris broke her hip, in the 1994 Northridge earthquake and never recovered dying 8 months later at the age of 82 this is her only Alfred Hitchcock presents appearance harry tyler who plays pop was last in episode 2 premonition but i don't think we talked about him back then so let's take a quick look at his career he started in film in 1929 in the cockeyed world and from there appeared in babbitt Naughty Marietta, The Glass Key, A Nut at the Opera with the Marx Brothers, Young Mr. Lincoln, The Grapes of Wrath, I Married a Witch, Brewster's Millions, The Blue Dahlia, Bedtime for Bonzo, and Them. He's in lots of westerns. He's in the Suspicion episode, The Last Town Car. He appeared as the court clerk two different times in two different Perry Mason episodes. And he has a wonderful little bit as an aging bellboy in an episode of the Mickey Rooney Show, which is also known as... He's not the only actor we're going to talk about in this episode who appeared in the Mickey Rooney Show. Here he is with Mickey in that scene.
4: Look, kid, you
2: should have gotten a $5 room. There, you have a breathtaking view of the city
3: incinerator. Oh. oh well, look, I, I hate to bother you, but uh where is the bed? Right in front of your eyes. In front of my eyes? What do you Oh, how about that? That's clever. That's very clever. Gee. <laughs> uh, no springs?
8: For two and a half bucks? Oh, come now.
3: Right. And
2: look, I want to warn you about something. Don't ever pull the bed out of the
8: wall before four in the afternoon. Why? The guy in the next room uses it
1: during the day.
0: He's in nine more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next being Place of Shadows, episode 22. And Harry Tyler died in 1961 at the age of 73. Okay. So Maisie is about to flip her lucky silver dollar. But before she does, Fabian enters. He's not this Fabian,
6: turn me loose. Turn me loose,
0: but rather the ventriloquist, played by Claude Rains. Let's keep our look at Claude until the end of the proceedings. He walks in, carrying a very large suitcase, and Pop comments on it.
2: Mr. Fabian, you're the first ventriloquist I've ever known who took his dummy home every night. Well, I can't risk anything happening. It'd be a little late for me to turn into a song and dance man. That's what I'd have to do if this was stolen. He should worry if
0: it's stolen. I hear it's insured for thousands of dollars.
7: Me, I see that it was stolen and collect
1: the insurance. (laughs) Come on, let's match. Okay.
0: So, Maisie flips her coin so badly that it lands on the floor, rolls past a conveniently open basement door, and down the basement steps. Maisie's excuse for this bad throw is that she had
1: too many vodkas last night, Dad,
0: which makes her one of the more honest characters in this episode, along with Ria Baczynska herself. Maisie and Pop. Walk down into the dark of the basement. The camera shows the stairs from the front and then from behind as we see their legs go down. Then Maisie strikes a match and she sees, in a wonderful close up of her face, that the coin has landed on top of a dead body, which is a pretty amazing bounce of the coin. And this sight in that close up gets Maisie to react like this. <coughs> Then it's back to a shot of that body stuffed in a dark corner. The coin seems to be illuminated, and I think that it's heads, but the crossfade happens too fast to be sure. That crossfade takes us to a table with a cup of coffee, a spoon, a notepad, and a couple of hands, one of which is writing in the notepad with a pencil. The hand puts the pencil down, stirs the coffee with the spoon, and lifts the cup to drink. The camera follows the cup up to the face, and the face that we see is that of Charles Bronson. He gets up, and the camera follows him, and we see that he is interviewing Pop, whom he calls Mr. Sewell. They've identified the body as that of a man named Mr. Ockham, as in Ockham's razor, which posits that simpler explanations are more likely to be correct. That turns out to be true in this case. Because we're not really dealing with a murder mystery here. We're dealing with something far more. And it turns out that Pop has seen Mr. Ockham before. He came asking after Mr. Fabian. Must have been Well What
8: did he say exactly? wanted to know the times of the shows. That
1: is when Mr. Fabian went on. And the time that would be the most convenient to see him. Did
8: you tell Mr. Fabian this? I did. What did Mr. Fabian have to say? He said to tell him he was
1: too busy to see anyone. That there were a lot of crackpots around wanting to be ventriloquists, and he wasn't in the mood to answer a lot of questions.
8: Did he act uneasy about it when you told him? No, he didn't. And he didn't seem to care when I told him that the man said he had something very important to talk to him
0: about. The camera sticks with Bronson throughout this entire scene, even when he moves away from Pop and looks at Pop's office wall covered with pictures of chorus girls. It seems pretty obvious from this conversation that Bronson's character is a cop. And that's confirmed when he enters Fabian's dressing room and talks to Mr. and Mrs. Fabian.
8: I'm Detective Lieutenant Krovich. How do you do? How do you do? I understand, Mrs. Fabian, that you are an assistant in your husband's act. Is that right?
7: Yes, I am.
8: How long, may I ask?
7: Too long.
0: Well, that's not very subtle. We're going to find out the reason for Mrs. Fabian's discontent in a moment. But first, why don't we look at Claire Carleton, who plays Mrs. Fabian. She began her career in the 30s, mostly on stage. Her first feature film appearance is Millionaire Playboy in 1940. During her career, she was often cast as the Other Woman, as she is here in one of the stranger romantic triangles. And she appeared in the films A Double Life, Born Yesterday, and The Buster Keaton Story. In the 50s, she switched to TV, playing Mickey Rooney's mother in The Mickey Rooney Show even though she was only seven years older than Mickey.
7: Why didn't you come in and eat?
3: Because I'm always late for dinner, and I don't want to jeopardize my position as the average man. Oh, Michael, don't sit there tonight. Uh, Sit over there. Why, Mom, I always sit here. I've got to sit here. An average man never changes his mind, remember.
7: (laughs) I tried to warn you that the leg was broken.
2: That's what happens when the average man sits on a below-average
4: chair.
0: She's in the Perry Mason episode. case of the stuttering bishop and she's in the thriller episode the watcher she's in three more episodes of alfred hitchcock presents her next being the jokester episode three of season four and claire carlton died in 1979 at the age of 66. so lieutenant krovich starts to ask his questions of mr mrs fabian and the line begins did either
8: of you know arkham the man who was murdered no You ever hear his name before? No. Mrs. Fabian, I asked if you'd ever heard the name Ockham before.
1: No, I have not.
8: Mr. Fabian, the doorman told me earlier that he told you Ockham had been around inquiring for you, said he had something very important to tell you. Well, that may very well be true. I mean about his inquiring for me.
2: But that doesn't mean that I'd seen or heard of him before.
0: But there's another party who wants to get in on the act, only she's stuffed in Fabian's suitcase.
7: Let me out. Let me out,
0: someone. Please, let me out. When Bachinska asks to be let out, the camera switches to a shot of the suitcase, as if the voice is actually coming from that suitcase. So right away we establish a scenario in which whatever is in the suitcase is a separate being. Even though Claude Rains does a wonderful job of barely moving his mouth whenever Ryabuchinska talks, so that we do know he is speaking for her, as a ventriloquist. This split perspective is exemplified in Lieutenant Krovich, who in one moment, objects to Fabian injecting his ventriloquist act into the questioning, and then in the next moment, opens the case as if Ryabuchinska is a real person.
7: But perhaps Lieutenant Krovich would like to question me.
8: Don't be silly, Ryabuchinska. We can do without the comedy, Fabian. I'd like to get on with this, if you don't mind.
0: Please, let me out.
8: All right, give me the key.
0: And once they open the case, Fabian is such a good ventriloquist that her voice is no longer muffled.
7: Thank you, Lieutenant Kravitch. You are very kind. Isn't she lovely, Lieutenant?
2: She's appeared in Paris, Rome. Vienna, all the big cities.
0: And she is lovely, as ventriloquist dummies go. She has a tiara, eyeshadow, shadow, plucked eyebrows, long eyelashes, lipstick, fingernail polish, and earrings. And she has a story to tell.
7: Please don't talk about me. You know Alice doesn't like it. Why, Alice always likes it. Why do you say that? You know it isn't true. I think you'd better go back into your box, Rebujinska. But I don't want to. I'm as much part of this murder as Alice or Mr. Douglas. Don't you dare drag him into this. It's just that I want the truth to be told. And if I'm locked away in my box, I know it will not be. You see, Fabian's such a liar. And I have to watch him. Well, you get that thing out of my sight. I'm sick of it.
8: You hate that dummy, don't you, Mrs. Fabian? But well,
2: wouldn't you if- Alice, you don't have to tell him anything. Tell him about
7: Mr. Douglas. Will you keep her quiet?
2: Apparently she prefers to
0: talk. There's a whole lot going on in that little snippet. First, she tells Fabian not to talk about her because Alice doesn't like it. The implication is that Alice is jealous of Ryubachinska. But could it actually just be that Alice is fed up with her husband speaking through this dummy and upending their relationship? Well, Alice certainly knows that it's Fabian doing all the talking but she still starts to think of Ryabuchinska as an actual individual. Or at least so it seems when she says,
7: Why do you keep her quiet?
0: Fabian's response to that, Apparently she prefers to talk. really serves to establish Ryabuchinska as an actual individual. Now when Ryabuchinska says that Alice doesn't like it, and Fabian says, Oh, Alice always likes it. Ryabuchinska replies, Why do you say
7: that? You know it isn't true.
0: And she lays out the whole situation just a few moments later.
7: It's just that I want the truth to be told. And if I'm locked away in my box, I know it will not be. You see, Fabian's such a liar.
0: So that's the roadmap to follow in this episode right there, just laid out for you. Fabian is a liar. Ryu always tells the truth. Though she does shade it a bit when she says things like,
7: I'm as much part of this murder as Alice or Mr. Douglas.
0: She's actually much more a part of this murder than Alice, as we'll find out later. Although Mr. Douglas, Fabian's manager, is indeed having an affair with Alice Fabian. Now, during this sequence, Fabian looks almost entirely at Ria Bachenska, and he has her look at him. So this establishes their close-knit relationship, and once again gets us thinking that they're two individuals rather than one. Krovich tells Fabian that Mr. Douglas is out in the hall and asks him to go get him. There's a lovely shot as Fabian takes Ryabachinska out the door that also shows Krovich and Alice in a mirror. And once Fabian leaves, there's a quick cut to Krovich and Alice so that the mirror scenario becomes the real scenario, which is appropriate because they are really going through the looking glass. You mean to tell me you're jealous of a doll?
7: Oh, I know it sounds silly, and I suppose it's the greatest tribute I could pay him as a ventriloquist. But I began to resent her. I couldn't help it. Why, do you know he spent hundreds of dollars in her wardrobe when I had nothing to wear? Why, Lieutenant, do you know that he
0: That's when Douglas and Fabian and Ryubachinska enter. And it's a shame, because Alice is starting to say something else, and we never learn what it is. Krovich questions Douglas... And Douglas comes out with an interesting line. Did you know the dead man?
8: No, I did not. You sure that somewhere along the line in your various dealings you might not have met him and then forgotten?
5: I have a very good memory for faces, and I certainly would not have forgotten his. Such an ugly little man.
0: We're not here
8: to discuss his physical appearance.
0: So, if Mr. Douglas has never met Occam, then how does he know he was an ugly little man? Did he see the body as they took it out of the theater? This line, I think, is a red herring laid in there to make us believe, at least at this moment, that Douglas has murdered Occam to prevent him from telling Fabian about his affair with Alice. Now, a man's
8: been murdered. Someone here's not telling the truth.
0: Ryabuchinska looks right at Fabian and says,
7: Someone here is not telling the truth.
0: It couldn't be more plain than that, but Douglas's response, I think we've all seen enough of your dummy act on stage without getting any more of it here. muddies the water by making us feel that Ryabuchinska is accusing Douglas. That's what Krovich thinks.
5: You know,
8: Arkham was a very poor man, down on his luck. He came to the theater tonight because he knew about you and Douglas. Now maybe he threatened to speak to Mr. Fabian about you if you didn't buy him off. Now that would give you the best reason in the world to get rid of him,
5: wouldn't it?
0: There's only one problem with this theory.
5: Well, there was no need to kill anyone. You see, Fabian knew all about Alice and me.
2: Did you? I did indeed.
7: (laughs) I did indeed. I wouldn't laugh if I were you, Fabian.
0: I wouldn't laugh. And Fabian gives her this wonderful look, as if surprised at her admonishment. Now, that's the last we'll see of both Alice and Mr. Douglas. So, why don't we take a look at Lowell Gilmore, who played Mr. Douglas. He was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, but he often played British aristocrats. IMDb says, Dapper, well-spoken American character actor, usually seen as British-accented cads and bounders. He started as a stage manager in 1929 on the Broadway play The First Mrs. Fraser*, and he got his first role, replacing one of the actors in that play. He appeared on Broadway in The Taming of the Shrew and Leave Her to Heaven, and his films include Days of Glory, The Black Arrow, where he played the Duke of Gloucester, the future Richard III, The Picture of Dorian Gray.
5: There's something I can't quite understand. Something mystic about it. Mystic. I don't know how to explain it, but whenever Dorian poses for me, it seems as if a power outside myself were guiding my hand. It's as if the painting had a life of its own, independent of me. That's why I'm not going to exhibit it. It belongs rightfully to Dorian Gray, and I shall give it him.
0: And King Solomon's Mines.
5: Oh, perhaps I go back to England for good. I've thought of that, too. (laughs) What would you do there? Become a shopkeeper? This is a mood, Alan. I've seen it growing on you the past few months. You've been alone too much. England is no place for you. You've built a career here. Don't toss it away. The happiest, finest fate a man can have in this world is to be the best at something. You may not realize it, but your reputation spread to England, too.
0: On television, he played Pontius Pilate in both the Living Christ series and I Beheld His Glory. He's in two episodes of science fiction theater Stranger in the Desert and Jupitron. This is his only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and he died in 1960, the age of 53. The scene shifts, and now we're watching Fabian's act, up on a catwalk, behind Krovich, and a stagehand. And it sure seems like Fabian's act is not really comedy, but almost like a romantic encounter.
2: Maria Wachinska, have you anything to say to your audience?
7: I think you are all wonderful.
2: And have you anything to say to me?
7: I think you're the most wonderful ventriloquist in the world. And... And what? I love you, Fabian.
0: As the curtain closes, the stagehand gives Krovich an important piece of information. He never went over as good with the boy dummy. Boy dummy? Yeah. He called him Sweet William. The girl's better. She's real cute, ain't she? Yes, she is. The stagehand is played by Bill Hyade, and he was in more than 250 films between 1937 and 1957, including The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse, The Grapes of Wrath, Sergeant York, I Married a Witch, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Father of the Bride, The Asphalt Jungle, Bonzo Goes to College, and Comeback Little Sheba. He's probably best known, though, as the heavyweight champion who gets knocked out by Kid Galahad in kid galahad which featured humphrey bogart and edward g robinson
5: you have three chances to finish him i hit him with everything yeah but you're throwing them wild you'll wear your arms out i told you to set yourself i missed that pretty kiss of some more first you gotta do what butt says. get hold of yourself
0: and as one of the toughs in key largo which also featured humphrey bogart and edward g robinson
5: what's the
9: idea of them
3: they shut the electricity off we still have light
9: I hear that a hurricane blows off roofs, uproots trees, and puts the snatch on people, and they all go flying around the sky together. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. This is his only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Bill Haid died in 1966 at the age of 63. Later, Krovich is heading through the backstage area to Fabian's dressing room. He's apparently been around there for a while. One reason we know that is that Maisie, now dressed in her chorus girl's outfit, swats him on the behind with her prop parasol and says, Hi. Hi. Krovich is about to knock on Fabian's door, but he hears Fabian talking to Bachinska. What are you thinking, Mr. Fabian? About you, as always.
7: And what were you thinking about
2: me? I was thinking that there were nights in my life when I dreamed of the unobtainable.
0: And you were what I dreamed. Krovich enters then, and Fabian tries to tell him that he's rehearsing a new act, but Ryubachinska won't let him get away with that.
7: Now, Fabian, you know we're not booked anywhere next week.
0: She tells the truth, doesn't she? Krovich has been busy, and he pulls out a photograph that he shows to Fabian. A photograph of a woman who looks very much like Ryubachinska.
8: Miss Ilyana Ryamanova. 100 pounds, black hair, blue eyes, oval face. Born 1914, of Slav parentage, believed to be a victim of amnesia. You know, Fabian, it was pretty silly of me to go through the police files, looking for this picture of a dummy. should have heard them laugh down there at headquarters. But here she is, Ria Buchinska. Not paper mache, not wood, not a doll, but a woman that once lived and moved around. And Fabian disappeared.
0: The music is very interesting throughout this entire episode. It purports to be the music that's being performed on stage, and there are times when it feels wildly inappropriate for whatever we're seeing on screen. But in this case, as Fabian and Ryabashinska exchange words of love, and as Krovich shows Fabian a picture of the real Ria Ryabashinska, we have a waltz playing in the background. That changes to a drum roll. When Krovich makes his point, Fabian tries to lie his way out of it, claiming that he only saw a picture of the woman and fashioned his dummy after her. But Krovich won't let him.
8: It's not that simple. This morning I went through a stack of theatrical magazines that high. I found a very interesting article concerning an act that toured a second rate circuit in 1934. The act was known as Fabian and Sweet William. Sweet William was a boy dummy. And there was a girl assistant. Yojana Riemanova. There was no picture of her in the article, though. But at least I had a name, the name of a real person to go by. Very simple for me then to dig up this picture out of the police files. Fabian, suppose you tell me the whole story, huh?
2: Well, she was my assistant, that's all. I simply
8: used her as a model. You're making me sweat. Now, why don't you stop fencing around and get on with the story?
0: I love that line, you're making me sweat. I've never heard that used that way before. And it turns out it actually comes from Bradbury's short story. Anyway, with this pressure, and as the music becomes once again sort of a circus fanfare, Fabian confesses that he had Ileana as his assistant, and he fell in love with her.
2: Yes, but there were arguments. Bitter, bitter arguments. Unkind, unfair things were said. Once I even burned her entire wardrobe in a fit of jealousy. She took that quite quietly. And Then one night I gave her a week's notice. I accused her of being disloyal. I shouted at her, I slapped her, and I pushed her out. She disappeared that night.
0: So he not only shouted at her and slapped her and pushed her out, he burned her entire wardrobe. Krovich thinks that he murdered her. But it appears that that's not the case, at least in this version. Instead, Fabian put ads in the paper and hired detectives, all to no avail. His act with Sweet William was not doing well, so he finally got the idea to retire Sweet William and carve a new dummy in the form of his missing Ilyana.
2: I bought new wood. Beautiful, fine-grained wood. And then I began to carve slowly and carefully make the little nostrils so cut the thin black eyebrows round and high make the cheeks small hollows at first i grew discouraged how after all could a cold chunk of wood convey any idea of the exquisite features of iliana my iliana who was gone but i was obsessed so i continued on
0: now, the first time I saw this, I thought it was rather strange that the ventriloquist actually created his own dummy. I didn't think that a ventriloquist had to be an artist in woodworking. So I looked into this a little bit, and I did find this one video clip from a puppet maker named Kenny Crows. And in the clip, he says,
4: You know, most of the, the people that buy the, the dummies that I make are, you know, amateur or, or professional in... In, in some way you know Jeff Dunham hasn't bought one yet so he tends to make his own so but uh, maybe someday I'll I'll have a dummy that's been bought by a you know a really well known ventriloquist
0: So Jeff Dunham whom we heard in the clip from 30 Rock makes his own dummies so I guess it's not that strange Now during Fabian's description of all this he has set Ria Bachinska down so that she's lying in her box it looks like she's lying in her coffin But as he continues to tell the story of how he carved her, he lifts her up, bringing her back to life. And with each description of her eyes opening, her mouth opening a bit, and so on, that's exactly what we see happen. Her eyes open, her lips part.
2: It took me a whole month just to carve her hands. The weeks passed. And then, one day, I finally held the puppet in my arms. And suddenly... The tiny hand moved, and the wooden body became soft and pliable and warm.
8: Oh, come on now, Fabian. The eyes opened, and she looked up at me.
2: The little mouth opened just the tiniest fraction of an inch. She wanted to tell me something. There was a whisper. I couldn't make it out at first, and then, The little head moved this way gently, and then that way gently. Then the mouth half opened again, and I bent my head to hear.
0: I love you, Fabian. But even with all of this confession, Fabian still denies knowing Ockham, and Krovich has no proof. So he leaves, as Fabian very slowly and tenderly puts Ryabachinska back in her box and starts to close the lid. So Krovich goes to see a booking agent, and there he learns that Ockham was a juggler who was trying to get work. The agent tells Krovich about a couple of Ockham's visits, and then he says, And finally, on his last call, he said he was going to come and pick up his press book. He'd have the press book here? Well, yeah, as if I wanted it. Seems like he
2: spent half his life pasting his little heart away in his press book. He never did pick it up. I guess the only reason he
8: didn't was that he got knocked off. You just get that press book for me, will you?
0: Oh, sure. Charles Cantor played the booking agent, and we've seen him before in The Long Shot, Episode 9. He's got one more appearance in Alibi Me, Episode 7 of Season 2. So now Krovich has evidence, and he brings the press book to Fabian.
8: How do you explain this?
0: There's the world so full of Luke
8: Ockham's that were jugglers and played on the same bill as Fabian and Sweet William at the Grand in Chicago that this might be another one.
2: All right, so I knew him. That doesn't prove that I killed him.
0: No, but it proves that
8: you've been lying straight down the
0: line. There's a nice shot here of Fabian at his dressing table so that we see him in the mirror. We also see Krovich in the mirror, but we don't see the actual Krovich, just his reflection. Perhaps because he's gone through the looking glass again. Sitting on the table next to the mirror is Bachinska. She sits right next to Fabian's reflection. The other people on that bill, by the way, at the Grand Theater in Chicago, are Flying Arabs on the High Wire, Runkle, Collins and Company by popular demand, Malburn and Miller Melodies and Dances. Fabian still doesn't want to talk, but Ryabachinska does. Logakam's
7: first letter came a month ago.
0: No.
8: I see. You won't talk, is that it, Fabian? But she will. Here. Make her talk. I think she'll tell the truth.
0: What follows is a nicely creepy scene. I mentioned once before that Claude Rains does a great job of moving his mouth just a little bit so that we can see that he is actually a ventriloquist performing the act. Now, though, even as he does it, Ryubychinska tells the story of what happened with Occam, and the camera moves over to show just her. So again, she becomes a real person in our eyes. And when Fabian thinks she's going too far, he actually covers her mouth with his hand. And Krovich, all aware all along that this is a ventriloquist act, pulls Fabian's hand away from Ryubychinska's mouth and says, Let her talk. Here's the whole scene.
7: There was only one, Luke Ockham, and he was a juggler. And he had been on the same bill with Fabian and Sweet William at the Grand Theater in Chicago. And he remembered that once there had been a woman before there was a dummy.
8: No. Let her talk.
7: Yes. Yes, I must talk. I must tell the truth.
8: No.
0: There is something i must say i was in the here fabian clamps his lips shut stopping Ria from talking
8: i said let her talk fabian
7: i i was in the room when luke ockham came i lay in my box but i listened and i cared and i know they they had an argument about the money He wanted Fabian to pay him a $1,000. I heard him cry out and fall. His head must have struck the floor.
2: You heard nothing. You're deaf, you're wood. I know because I created you.
7: I may be wood, but I can hear. I hear through you, and I speak the truth through you.
0: I think that's a really powerful moment there. Fabian becomes nothing more than a conduit through which Baczynska can hear and speak the truth.
7: Go on, what happened then? The choking sound stopped. I heard Fabian dragged Mr. Ockham down the stairs, under the theater, to the basement. Down, 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 I held them going.
8: So you killed Ockham because he knew that you killed Ilyana Ryomanova and was blackmailing you.
7: No, he did not kill Ilyana, only Mr. Ockham. Well, then why Fabian? Why did you kill him?
0: Tell him, Fabian. And now, for the full confession, Fabian himself speaks.
2: He threatened to tell the world about us, about Ryabrychinska and me.
0: He wanted to hold
2: our love up to ridicule, but I couldn't let him do that, could I? How could we have been happy that way? People would have laughed. People would have turned away. Horrible, they'd have said. Ugly. Look at them on that stage. He's in love with a piece of wood. Who do they think they are? Romeo and Juliet? Tristan and Isolde? Look at those hideous, revolting freaks. So you see, I had to kill him. He was trying to
0: spoil the only beautiful thing that was left in my life. I think it's important that Fabian confesses himself here, and not through Ryabuchinska, because he finally has to face that he has killed someone to keep that person from revealing that he is in love with a puppet. I'm tempted to scoff at this and to sing, And they called it puppet love. But that's exactly the point. Because any love you have that is not same race, opposite sex, standard 1950s conception of love will leave you open to ridicule, may make you susceptible to blackmail, may cause you such shame that you resort to drastic measures. Note, though, that Ryubchinska feels no shame. She declares her love for Fabian openly, on stage, in public. So it's not the love that's going to kill Ryubchinska. It's not even the lying, as she says. It's the violent reaction to the shame.
7: There's no way to go on from here. No way. No way?
2: No, don't leave me, Butinska. I promise you everything will be different.
7: You are forever promising. You never listened to me when I tried to make you see how wrong you were.
2: Yes, but I'll listen now. From now on, if you'll only not leave me.
7: I must. When you killed him, I realized that we could not go on. Because while I've lived with your lies, I cannot live with something that kills. How can I live? No.
2: Ria Ryabuchinska. Ryabuchinska! She's gone. I can't find her. She's run away. I can't live without her. Help me to find her. Please. Help me to find her. Please. Please.
8: We'd better go.
0: As Krovich leads Fabian out the door, Fabian lets Ryabuchinska drop down onto the floor, and she lies there, face down, as the episode ends. And so died Ryabuchinska. Now, there are those who are bothered by the circus-like music that closes out the story. But it's the same music we came in on, so it brackets the episode. And there is circus-like or show-business-like music running through the entire episode. To remind us that this is a theater piece. That this is a stage tragedy, but certainly not a safe standard tragedy. Remember Fabian says, Who do they think they are? Romeo and Juliet? Tristan and Isolde? And perhaps he does think of them that way, but the audience isn't capable of that. Krovich is sympathetic, but he doesn't understand, which leaves Fabian very lonely. His tragedy a tragedy only to himself, and perhaps to others who may not love a puppet, but may love somebody other than the standard 1950s version of love. Ah, but you say, there is no real Ryabachinska. It's all just Fabian himself. And he's created a false Ryabachinska because he drove the real woman away, and now he's using the false one to drive his wife away. All of this is true. And it's also true that through his selfishness, through his shame, through his act of murder, he manages to not only drive away the real Ryabachinska and his wife, but the Ryabachinska that is only in his mind. So he deserves it, I suppose. And yet we still feel for him. And if we can feel for this unusual love, this unusual consensual love, in 1956, perhaps we can feel for others who share a love with which we cannot identify. Now, the decision in the teleplay to make Fabian's motivation for murdering Occam simply that Occam was going to reveal that he was in love with his puppet is a daring one. I think this is not necessarily the motivation in the other versions of the story. In his blog at Barebones E-Zine, Jack Seabrook lays out the sequence of adaptations. Bradbury wrote the original story titled "Ria Baczynska" in the 1940s and it was first sold to Suspense, the CBS radio series, where it was adapted by Mel Dinelli and broadcast over the air on November 13, 1947. Bradbury and his agents subsequently sold serial rights, and it was first published under the title And So Died Ryubachinska in the second issue of The Saint Detective magazine, June-July 1953. The story sold a couple of years later to the producers of the Hitchcock TV series, and Mel Dinelli was hired to adapt it once again, this time for television. And Jack also adds that the name Ryobachinska, chosen by Ray Bradbury as the name of Fabian's beautifully carved dummy, is unusual and may have been taken from the ballerina Tatiana Ryabuchinska, who was born in Russia just before the revolution in 1917. Her family fled to France when she was a baby, and she grew up to be a star with the Ballet Russe, becoming famous in the 1930s. So let's take a look at Bradbury's short story. Here's how it begins. The cellar was cold cement, and the dead man was cold stone, and the air was filled with an invisible fall of rain, while the people gathered to look at the body, as if it had been washed in on an empty shore at morning. The gravity of the earth was drawn to a focus here in this single basement room, a gravity so immense that it pulled their faces down, bent their mouths at the corners, and drained their cheeks. Their hands hung weighted, and their feet were planted, so they could not move without seeming to walk under water. A voice was calling, but nobody listened. That voice, of course, is Ria Bachinska in her box, described here explicitly as this small coffin. Here's how Bradbury describes Ria Bachinska: The face was white, and it was cut from marble or from the whitest wood he had ever seen. It might have been cut from snow, and the neck that held the head, which was as dainty as a porcelain cup with the sun shining through the thinness of it, the neck was also white. And the hands could have been ivory, and they were thin small things with tiny fingernails and whorls on the pads of the fingers, little delicate spirals and lines. She was all white stone, with light pouring through the stone, and light coming out of the dark eyes, with blue tones beneath like fresh mulberries. He was reminded of milk glass and of cream poured into a crystal tumbler. The brows were arched and black and thin, and the cheeks were hollowed, and there was a faint pink vein in each temple and a faint blue vein, barely visible above the slender bridge of the nose, between the shining dark eyes. Her lips were half parted, and it looked as if they might be slightly damp, and the nostrils were arched and mottled perfectly, as were the ears. The hair was black, and it was parted in the middle, and drawn back of the ears, and it was real. He could see every single strand of hair. Her gown was as black as her hair, and draped in such a fashion as to show her shoulders, which were carved wood as white as a stone that has lain a long time in the sun. She was very beautiful. Krovich felt his throat move, and then he stopped and did not say anything. The story is much the same as the Hitchcock episode, but there are a few things I'd like to point out. First of all, Ryabachinska says this, It's just that I want the truth to be told, and if I'm locked in my coffin, there'll be no truth. For John's a consummate liar, and I must watch after him. Isn't that right, John? Yes, he said, his eyes shut. I suppose it is. John loves me best of all the women in the world, and I love him, and try to understand his wrong way of thinking. So here, even Ryabachinska refers to her box as a coffin. Here's Alice Fabian. I married John seven years ago because he said he loved me, and because I loved him, and I loved Ryabachinska. At first, anyway. But then I began to see that he really lived all of his life and paid most of his attentions to her, and I was a shadow waiting in the wings every night. He spent $50,000 a year on her wardrobe, a $100,000 for a dollhouse with gold and silver and platinum furniture. He tucked her in a small satin bed each night and talked to her. I thought it was all an elaborate joke at first, and I was wonderfully amused. But when it finally came to me that I was indeed merely an assistant in his act, I began to feel a vague sort of hatred and distrust. Not for the marionette, because after all it wasn't her doing, but I felt a terrible growing dislike and hatred for John, because it was his fault. He, after all, was the control, and all of his cleverness and natural sadism came out through his relationship with the wooden doll. And when I finally became very jealous, how silly of me. It was the greatest tribute I could have paid him, and the way he had gone about perfecting the art of throwing his voice. It was all so idiotic, it was all so strange. And yet I knew that something had hold of John, just as people who drink have a hungry animal somewhere in them, starving to death. So I moved back and forth from anger to pity, from jealousy to understanding. There were long periods when I didn't hate him at all, and I never hated the thing that Ria was in him, for she was the best half, the good part, the honest and the lovely part of him. She was everything that he never let himself try to be. And then there's this scene, which we don't get at all in the Hitchcock version. One night he came home, bringing his own darkness with him, and collapsed upon a chair. Before he knew it, he found himself speaking to Sweet William in the totally black room. William, it's all over and done. I can't keep it up. And William cried, coward, coward, from the air above his head out of the emptiness. You can get her back if you want. Sweet William squeaked and clappered at him in the night. Yes, you can. Think, he insisted. Think of a way. You can do it. Put me aside. Lock me up. Start all over. Start all over? Yes, whispered sweet William. And darkness moved within darkness. Yes. Buy wood. Buy fine new wood. Buy hard-grained wood. Buy beautiful fresh new wood. And carve. Carve slowly and carve carefully. Whittle away. Cut delicately. Make the little nostrils sew. And cut her thin black eyebrows round and high so, And make her cheeks in small hollows. Carve, carve. No, it's foolish. I could never do it. Yes, you could. Yes, you could. Could, could, could. The voice faded, a ripple of water in an underground stream. The stream rose up and swallowed him. His head fell forward. Sweet William sighed. And then the two of them lay like stones buried under a waterfall. And so Fabian carves Ryabachinska and transfers his essence, his ventriloquist essence, from Sweet William to her. And all the while, Sweet William lay mantled in dust in his box that was fast becoming a very real coffin. Sweet William croaking and wheezing some feeble sarcasm, some sour criticism, some hint, some help, but dying all the time, fading, soon to be untouched, soon to be like a sheath molted in summer and left behind to blow in the wind. As the weeks passed and Fabian molded and scraped and polished the new wood, Sweet William lay longer and longer in stricken silence, And one day, as Fabian held the puppet in his hand, Sweet William seemed to look at him a moment with puzzled eyes, and then there was a death rattle in his throat, and Sweet William was gone. But then Fabian turns to his new puppet, and Bradbury writes, The tiny head turned this way gently, that way gently. The mouth half opened again and began to speak, and as it spoke he bent his head, and he could feel the warm breath. Of course it was there coming from her mouth, when he listened very carefully, holding her to his head, his eyes shut. Wasn't it there too, softly, gently, the beating of her heart? So, did Fabian kill the Ria Ryabachinska in Bradbury's story? It appears not, but it's not really stated outright, as it is in the Hitchcock episode. But still, as in the episode, Ryabachinska cannot live with someone who, as she says, kills and hurts in killing, and so, as in the episode, she fades away. Now, as Jack Seabrook told us, the story was adapted for suspense with a script by Mel Dinelli. He was born Emilio Dinelli, and he wrote for theater, radio, film, and magazines, usually in the suspense genre. He wrote close to a dozen scripts for suspense, including August Heat, Drive-In, and To Find Help. His radio script, The Hand, was one of the only scripts to ever be rejected by Autolite, who were Suspense's sponsor. That story concerned a woman who is involved in an auto accident and gets to the car she totaled to discover the driver's severed hand still clutching an envelope filled with thousands of dollars in cash. His screenwriting credits include The Spiral Staircase, in which Dorothy McGuire played a mute menace by a psychopath, The Window, about a boy who was unable to convince anyone that he has witnessed a murder, and Beware My Lovely with Ida Lupino as a widow trapped in a suburban house with a menacing stranger played by Robert Mitchum. His play The Man, about a housewife held captive by a killer, was produced on Broadway in 1950, and it starred Dorothy Gish. This is his only script for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Meldonelli died in 1991 at the age of 79. Now, I'm not particularly fond of the suspense episode, That's mostly because it uses lots of narration to carry the story along.
7: You had heard of honesty and intelligence and frankness and unafraidness all your life. And now it looked straight up at you, fearlessly, shiningly, from a puppet's eye. She was so beautiful, your
2: throat closed and you were sad because you knew that she was only
0: a puppet. There are some very nice moments, however. I like Mr. Douglas's violent reaction to Ria Bochinska, as if she's a real person, though it is marred by the subsequent narration.
2: I have as much right to listen and talk, I'm as much a part of this murder as Alice, or,
5: or Mr. Douglas?
1: Don't drag me into this, you little witch!
7: And the manner in which he replied made it obvious that Ria Bochinska was more than an allusion to him.
0: I like this exchange between Fabian and Krovich.
2: We're wasting time. If you think you'll interfere with my investigation, baby. Lieutenant, I am helpless. But she's in your throat.
8: No. She is in my heart, which is much deeper.
2: Sometimes I'm powerless. Sometimes she is only herself. Nothing of me
1: at all. Sometimes she tells me what to do, and I must do it. She watches over me, reprimands me, is honest where I am dishonest. Ethical where I
2: am wicked as old sin. She lives her life, I live mine. She's raised a wall in my head between herself and me, and she lives there. Ignoring
1: me if I try to make her say improper things, but cooperating by suggest the correct words and pantomime.
2: So, if you intend going on, I'm
5: afraid Rhea must be present.
0: In this version, we get Fabian's conversation with sweet William. William, William. Oh, this is all over and done.
2: I can't go on.
1: Coward! You can get her back, if you want.
0: No, I can't. No, I can never get her back.
1: Yes, yes, you can. Think. Think of a way to get her back.
0: We even get Sweet William's death rattle.
7: And one day, as Fabian held the puppet in his hand, Sweet William seemed to look at him a moment with puzzled eyes. And then there was a death rattle in his
0: throat. Oh, oh. And sweet William was gone. And I really like this moment where the stress of the confession turns Rhea Bachinska's voice momentarily into Fabian's. do come threatened to destroy me. Tear me up. Burn me into ashes. If John didn't pay him a thousand dollars. <laughs> In nineteen eighty eight, Ray Bradbury wrote the teleplay for a version of the story that appeared on Ray Bradbury Theatre. This one starred Alan Bates, and it takes place in Paris. And I think it's probably the best of the 80s versions that I've covered so far. I love the shadows in it. I love the moment when Fabian takes pearls out of a drawer next to Alice, but puts them on Rhea instead. I like the way William looks at Fabian as he watches Ilyana dance, and his eyes close. I like the way Fabian shakes his head no as Rhea says yes, I like the fact that they show him making Rhea Bichenska. I like this moment when Fabian transfers his essence from Sweet William to Rhea. My voice.
6: Hey,
3: what's happening? It's going, going, going.
0: What I don't particularly like is that in this version, Fabian actually does kill the real Ria Bachinska, and Occam is there and he sees the killing. So we lose that moment where we realize that Occam is murdered to keep him quiet about Fabian's relationship with a puppet. No, here Occam is murdered because he's blackmailing him for having seen the murder of the real Ria. Though I do like the moment where the flashback becomes reality again. And we see a fade from the real Ria's body on the stairs to the puppet Ria Bachinska in the same spot.
7: We have lived twice, but you killed us both now. It's over. <sighs> I've lived with your
6: weakness and your lies since you killed me. But when you killed him,
3: we both knew it was finished. I can't stay. You must.
6: No, you're alone now.
5: Bye. No. Goodbye. Hurry up. Bye. Hurry. Up.
0: Now let's look at our three leads. Three, you say? Yes, three. You may recall that back in my review of episode 12, Santa Claus and the Tenth Avenue Kid, I said the following. Virginia Gregg plays Miss Webster, and we've previously looked at her career back in episode four when she co-starred in Don't Come Back Alive. She is in two more Alfred Hitchcock Presents and three episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Her next is episode 20, And So Died Ria Buczynska, in which she plays, well, we'll get to that when we get to that. So what does Virginia Grigg play? She plays the voice of Ria Buczynska, of course. She's now in one more Alfred Hitchcock Presents and three Alfred Hitchcock Hours. Her next is Nightmare in 4D, episode 16 of season 2. Charles Bronson is usually thought of as an actor from the 1960s and 70s. But his career started long before that. I played a clip back in episode 15, The Big Switch, with George Matthews from Pat and Mike. Charles Bronson was also in that clip.
2: Let's everybody have a drink.
0: On me.
4: Oh, I never allow no alcoholic beverages around the lady here. Who said alcoholic? I mean, you know, like beer or something like that. Even beer. Uh, milk? Milk's okay. So,
2: how's about everybody a glass of milk?
5: All right. Some milk. Fill them up.
8: Uh, there seems to be quite a lot of dough. You know, money around that says you can make it. You know, win it.
7: Well, money talks. <laughs> that was in
0: 1952, and that was not his first appearance. His first appearance on screen was in 1949, in an episode of Fireside Theater. Charles Bronson was born Charles Dennis Buchinsky. He was the 11th of 15 children in a Lithuanian family in Pennsylvania, in the coal region. He learned to speak English when he was a teenager. Before that, he spoke Lithuanian and Russian. He was the first member of his family to graduate from high school. But when Bronson was 10 years old, his father died, and he went to work in the coal mines. He later said he earned $1 for each ton of coal that he mined. His family was so poor that, at one time, he had to wear his sister's dress to school for lack of clothing. He once told Roger Ebert that getting drafted into World War II was one of the best things that happened to him. For the first time in his life, he was well-fed and well-dressed, and it afforded him the opportunity to improve his English. So was he drafted, or did he enlist? IMDb seems to think he enlisted. They say he enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Forces and served in the 760th Flexible Gunnery Training Squadron and in 1945 as a Boeing B-29 Superfortress aerial gunner with the Guam-based 61st Bombardment Squadron within the 39th Bombardment Group, which conducted combat missions against the Japanese home islands. He flew 25 missions and received a Purple Heart. At the end of World War II, he worked many odd jobs until he joined a theatrical group in Philadelphia. He later shared an apartment in New York with Jack Klugman. In 1950, he married and moved to Hollywood, where he enrolled in acting classes and began to find small roles. In 1954, during the House on american Activities Committee proceedings, he changed his name from Buczynski to Bronson at the suggestion of his agent, who was afraid that an Eastern European name might damage his career. Now, most of his work in that time is in things not really worth mentioning, except he did play Igor in House of Wax.
2: Oh, this is Igor. He's a deaf-mute. He's one of my assistants.
0: So, since Igor is a deaf-mute, no audio clips, really, to play from that film. Also in the 50s, he was in the Suspicion episode Doomsday. He played Machine Gun Kelly, not to be confused with the rapper, in the film Machine Gun Kelly.
8: No, you're not being very smart, because I'm going to kill you now.
0: He starred as Mike Kovac in the TV series Man with a Camera. Man with a Camera,
5: starring Charles Bronson.
8: Mr. O'Neill, if somebody's threatening your daughter, it's a job for the police. No, I want cops. I'll send for cops. This is a job for you, Mike.
2: There's a picture angle, I ask, in the right places.
0: They gave me one name, Mike Kobach. In 1958, he played Butch Cassidy in an episode of Tales of Wells Fargo. And in the early 1960s, he was in the Twilight Zone episode 2. Go away.
8: Go away! You go take your war to more suitable companions. That's a civilian territory.
0: Then he started to get roles in films such as The Magnificent Seven. He
3: tells
8: me you're broke. I'm doing this because I'm an eccentric millionaire. It's a job for six men, watching over a village south of the border. How big's the opposition? 30 guns. I admire your notion of fair odds, mister.
0: And The Great Escape. In The Great Escape, he played Tunnel King Walensky. A role that becomes iconic enough that Quentin Tarantino references it in his rather explicit description of what Madonna's song, Like a Virgin, is all about in his film Reservoir Dogs. I mean,
3: this cat is like Charles Bronson in the Great Escape. He's digging
0: tunnels. Bronson himself, however, had a deathly fear of enclosed spaces ever since he'd been trapped in a cave-in while working in the mines as a boy. The tunnel he was working in, in The Great Escape, was a cutaway set, but he could still only stay in it for a few minutes at a time before he had to get up and leave. Now, you won't find Charles Bronson in any TV series after 1967, but that doesn't mean he was immediately a huge film star. He ended up going to Europe to make a serious name for himself. In 1968, Sergio Leone cast him in Once Upon a Time in the West,
8: I saw three of these dusters a short time ago. They were waiting for a train. Inside the dusters, there were three men. So? Inside the men, there were three bullets.
0: But that wasn't the first time Leone was interested in him. He offered Bronson the part of the man with no name in A Fistful of Dollars. Bronson turned it down saying that the script was bad. And of course, Clint Eastwood became an international star playing that role. Leone offered Bronson the role again in For a Few Dollars More. But again, Bronson passed, saying that the sequel script was like the first film. Then he offered him both the roles of Tuco and Angel Eyes in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And Bronson finally wanted to accept, but he had to decline both because he was in England filming The Dirty Dozen.
3: Somebody must have thought you made a good officer
8: made a big mistake, didn't they?
0: While in Europe, he appeared in the films Guns for San Sebastian, Rider on the Rain, and Red Sun. And he became successful enough there to be awarded a special Golden Globe Henrietta Award for world film favorite male, together with Sean Connery, in 1972. He returned to the States and started to establish himself in films like The Volaci Papers.
8: So who
5: really killed Maranzano?
0: I guess
8: you could say it was Luciano and Genovese. They hired the Bugsy Siegel boys to pose
0: like cops. And Mr. Majestic.
8: You get back
6: in
0: there and tell Frank
8: if he wants to settle this thing between us, he ain't got much time. The police are on their
0: way. But he really becomes a big star when he plays Paul Kersey in the 1975 film Death Wish.
8: Fill your hand. Huh?
2: Job.
0: Bronson was 52 years old when he took that role, and because of that role, he ranked fourth in box office drawing power in 1975, behind only Robert Redford, Barbara Streisand, and Al Pacino. Death Wish spawned four sequels: Death Wish 2. Do
8: you believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him.
0: Death Wish 3.
8: We heard shots. What happened? I sent them a message.
0: Death Wish 4. The Crackdown.
8: Gentlemen, it's your lucky day today. Bottle of wine on the house. Hey,
6: not bad.
8: Hey, don't I know you from someplace?
9: I don't think so. Yeah. I know your face. Did you ever live in San Francisco?
5: Uh, I'm from Idaho.
9: Hey,
5: I got a brother in Idaho. What city? Boise? Boise. Poissy. I know you. I never forget a face. What the hell?
0: And Death Wish 5, The Face of Death.
8: Hey, Freddy. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna take care of your dandruff probably. (gasps) No!
0: Bronson was married to actress Jill Ireland from 1968 until her death in 1990. He had met her in 1962 when she was married to David McCallum. At the time, Bronson reportedly told McCallum, I'm going to marry your wife. He and Jill Ireland starred in 15 films together. In 1985, Bronson told the Washington Post, I am not a Casper Milktoast," and he recalled the time he was visiting Rome and felt someone stick a gun in his side. A guy in broken English asked me for money. I said, you give me money. He turned around and walked away. Charles Bronson is in three Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes altogether. His next is coming right up. There was an old woman, episode 25. Charles Bronson died in 2003 at the age of 81. Claude Rains was born William Claude Rains. He lived in the slums of London in his own words, on the wrong side of the River Thames. He left school after the second grade to sell papers so that he could bring pennies and hay pennies home for his mother. Here's Jessica Rains, Claude's daughter, from the short feature, The Opera Ghost, A Phantom Unmasked, on the Phantom of the Opera DVD.
6: I am always in awe of how terribly elegant he was. He was um, one of 12 children, Um, All but two died from poverty-related illnesses in London. Uh, This was not an elegant upbringing. He had a very strong Cockney accent, which I couldn't understand when he spoke with it. He also had a couple of speech impediments. He couldn't say "ours." His name was William Raines, so he called himself Willie Waynes. He really transformed himself over a long period of time into somebody else, and that was the person that I knew.
0: His father was an actor, so young Claude spent time in theaters where he would watch actors up close. He made his debut on stage when he was 10 years old in the play Sweet Nell of Old Drury. He then eventually became a callboy telling actors when they were due on stage, and a prompter, a stage manager, an understudy, and then he slowly moved from smaller parts with good reviews to larger and better parts. He served in World War I, in the London Scottish Regiment, alongside Basil Rathbone, Ronald Coleman, and Herbert Marshall. During the war, he was in the midst of a gas attack, and he lost 90% of the vision in his right eye, permanently. After the war, he returned to England, where he was discovered, so to speak, by Sir Herbert Beerbohm Tree, who was the founder of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. It was Tree who told him he was going to have to get rid of his cockney accent and speech impediment. And Tree paid for the elocution, books, and lessons. Jessica Raine said at one time, The interesting thing to me was that he became a different person. He became a very elegant man with a really extraordinary mid Atlantic accent. It was his voice. Nobody else spoke like that half American, half English, and a little cockney thrown in. During his time on the stage, he performed in Bernard Shaw's The Apple Cart, Sheridan's The Rivals, and Shakespeare's Julius Caesar as Casca. He also taught. The Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Among his students were John Gilgood and Charles Lawton. While he was working for the Theatre Guild in 1932, Universal Pictures offered him a screen test, which did not go well. However, according to some accounts, his unique voice was overheard in another room, leading to James Whale offering him a screen test for *The Invisible Man*. That also did not go well. Claude called it the worst in the history of movie making. But James Whale hired him anyway, saying, I don't care what he looks like, that's the voice I want. And we all know that Claude Rains was the Invisible Man, even if we haven't seen the film, because we learned it in Rocky Horror, right?
3: Stand. And Flash Gordon
7: was there so. was the invisible man.
0: According to Jessica Raines, the Invisible Man was the only one of his films that he ever saw. He also never went to the rushes of the day's filmings because, as she said, He told me every time he went, he was horrified by his huge face on the huge screen, that he just never went back again. Now, the invisible man established him as a bad guy. Right, you fools. You've brought it on
2: yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains, and now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to
3: know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a souvenir for you. And one for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. (laughs)
0: Look, he's all eaten away. And he played other bad guys in The Mystery of Edwin Drood.
8: Rosa.
2: Rosa.
1: You'd do anything to get her you keep talking about, wouldn't you?
2: Rosa. She's mine. She's mine. No one shall have her but me.
0: The Adventures of Robin Hood, in which he played Prince John.
7: I know now why you tried so hard to kill this outlaw whom you despised. It's because he was the one man in England who protected the helpless against a lot of beasts who were drunk on you in blood. And now you intend to murder your own brother.
2: You'll be sorry you interfered.
7: Sorry? I'd do it again if you
2: killed me for it. A prophetic speech, my lady. For that is exactly what is going to happen to you.
0: And the Phantom of the Opera. Here he is in a scene with our old friend Kate Drain Lawson, who played the landlady in A Bullet for Baldwin, again playing a landlady. Marie, I haven't any money, not now. If you'll only be patient just a little longer.
1: You haven't any money, after working for the Paris Opera all these years. What do you expect to do with your money? Bury it with you? If you do, they'll dig you up and steal it.
3: If you think you're going to add a few francs to your fortune at my expense, you're very much mistaken.
2: Marie, you've been very kind, you've been very patient. You'll be paid, I promise you. Now please leave me alone.
0: But he also played good guys, such as the father in the film Four Daughters.
2: Girls, this is Felix Dietz. He's a blasted young pup who prefers jazz to the classics. He's arrogant, disrespectful, argumentative, conceited, and I like him.
1: Hello, Dietz.
0: As well as in the sequel, Four Wives, and its sequel, Four Mothers. He's the angel, Mr. Jordan, in Here Comes Mr. Jordan. He never
6: batted an eye.
2: Big buttons, huh? Remember, people can hear you now. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Forgot what, sir? Nothing. But they still can't see or hear you, huh?
8: No. Who can't see or hear who, sir? Nobody. I was just thinking. Yes, sir.
0: Sir John Talbot, the wolfman's father in The Wolfman,
2: Richardson was killed last night, the gravedigger. The tracks lead up to this house. Footprints?
0: No, animal tracks, a wolf. And Job Skeffington, ill-used by his spoiled wife, played by Betty Davis, in Mr. Skeffington. Is it Fanny?
7: You don't know me.
2: Oh, yes, I do. You're as beautiful as ever.
0: Here's Betty Davis in a 1971 interview with Dick Cavett.
7: And I was a kid and petrified of Mr. Raines. So I thought he hated me. I didn't know he was playing the character. I thought he uh. thinks I just stink. What am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, but eventually, we worked together quite a lot. Eventually, we became really great friends.
0: So Claude Raines excelled at playing bad guys and good guys. But he also played bad guys that you thought were good guys. As in, Mr. Smith goes to Washington.
2: Every aspect of this matter, the gentleman's attack on that section, everything was dealt with in committee hearing. Mr. Persons, I wish to ask my distinguished colleague, has he one scrap of evidence to add now to the defense he did not give and could not give at that same hearing? I have no defense against forged papers. Committee ruled otherwise. The gentleman stands guilty as charged. And I believe I speak for every member when I say that no one cares to hear what a man of his condemned character has to say about any section of any legislation before this house.
0: And good guys that you thought were bad guys, as in Casablanca.
2: It might be a good idea for you to disappear from Casablanca for a while. There's a free French garrison over at Brazzaville. I could be induced to arrange a passage. My letter of transit? I could use a trip. But it doesn't make any difference about our bet you still owe me 10,000 francs. And that 10,000 francs should pay our expenses. Our expensive,
0: hmm Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Not to mention bad guys who you somehow end up sympathizing with anyway, as in Hitchcock's Notorious, which we'll get to a little bit later. He is Caesar to Vivian Leigh's Cleopatra in Caesar and Cleopatra.
2: Then you do not resent treachery? Resent? Well, thou foolish Egyptian, what have I to do with resentment? I resent the wind when it chills me, on the night when it makes me stumble in the darkness. Tell me such a story as this as to tell me that the sun will rise tomorrow.
7: But it is false, false, I swear it.
2: It is true, though you swore it a thousand times and believed all you swore.
0: And he is Judge Dan Haywood in the Playhouse 90 version of Judgment at Nuremberg, the role later taken by Spencer Tracy in the film.
2: Now you listen to this on the signing of the Weimar Constitution. Now we can look forward to a Germany without guns and without bloodshed. A Germany of justice, where men can live instead of die. A Germany of purpose, of freedom, of humanity. A Germany that will call for the best in man. Now how could a man who wrote words like these be a part of what happened here?
0: His last few films include Irwin Allen's The Lost World. This is the greatest moment of your lives.
2: There it is, directly ahead. A body of land uplifted by volcanic eruption a hundred million years ago. The land where monsters live.
0: And Lawrence of Arabia.
2: He's of no use here in Cairo. It might be in Arabia. He knows his stuff,
5: sir. Knows the books,
0: His very last film role is perhaps one of his most villainous, Herod the Great, in The Greatest Story Ever Told. Go to
5: Bethlehem and kill this child. To be sure, every newborn boy in Bethlehem must die. Be
0: certain that none escape. In 1951, Claude Rains won a Tony Award for Best Performance by a Leading Actor in Darkness at Noon. He was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor four times for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Casablanca, Mr. Skeffington, and Notorious, though he did not win any of those. He was married six times. He separated from his first wife, Isabel Jeans, three times, finally filed for divorce on grounds of adultery when she miscarried Gilbert Wakefield's baby. During the divorce, she admitted the adultery, and she later married Wakefield. His marriage to his second wife, Marie Hemingway, only lasted a few months. They didn't know each other very well before they got married, and it was not until after they were married that he found out that she was an alcoholic. He appeared with his third wife, Beatrix Thompson, in The Rivals. His two former wives were also in the cast. They separated in 1928, and it took almost seven years to finalize the divorce. After Claude married his fourth wife, Frances Proper, Beatrix charged him with bigamy, challenging the legality of their divorce, but this apparently came to nothing. Francis Proper is the mother of his daughter, Jessica, and when she was 17, her mother woke her up in the middle of the night, saying that she was leaving her father and wanted to know if Jessica wanted to come with her. Jessica decided to stay with her dad. Claude and Francis divorced after Francis began a relationship with a woman's dress shop owner, whom she later married. On the day the divorce was final, Claude drank and drove his Bentley into a ditch, totaling it. When they found him, he was passed out drunk on the ground, and the car was upside down and on fire. His fifth wife, Agi Jambor, was a Hungarian Jew who had escaped the Holocaust. She was also a pianist and composer, composing the piano solo Sonata for the Victims of Auschwitz. Agi's first husband died in 1949. On the way to this wedding, she made Claude turn around and go back. She had forgotten to put on the underwear she had worn at her first wedding, which she insisted she wear for luck at her second wedding. That luck didn't materialize. Claude was ready to end the marriage after only about a year. He was reportedly bothered by the way his wife would practice piano on a silent keyboard, where he would see her hands moving, but not hear any music. And when he decided he was done, he had the locks changed on their house while she was out shopping. He married his sixth wife, Rosemary Clark Schrode, in 1960. She died in 1964, and Claude followed her just a few years later, dying in 1967 at the age of 77. He's in five total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is The Cream of the Jest, episode 24 of season two. Now, as I said, Claude Rains is the villain in Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. I don't want to spend too much time with Notorious, because I'd have to put together a podcast longer than this one to do it justice. Plus, I think everyone should see it if you haven't seen it. There are some people who consider it to be Hitchcock's best film. But I do want to talk about some aspects of it, and there are some great special features on the Criterion collection of Notorious that are worth looking at. So let's start with Donald Spoto from the special feature Poisoned Romance, talking about the germ of Notorious.
4: There was a story in the 1920s by John Tainter Foote, published serially in the Saturday Evening Post called The Song of the Dragon. That contains the germ of something like Notorious. A woman uh, is forced by political expediency, to be a character like Mata Hari. What Hitchcock did was to take a very, shall we say, unremarkable story and turn it into this great, great work. So Hitchcock took that idea, and he and Ben Hecht put
0: together the screenplay for Notorious. Notorious is essentially a love story between a woman crying out for an acknowledgement of love from the man she loves, who is a man who cannot give that to her, it becomes an espionage film because he works for the OSS or some government organization just after World War II. He Devlin, played by Cary Grant, gets Alicia, played by Ingrid Bergman, who is the daughter of a man who's just been convicted of collaborating with the Nazis, to make inroads in a relationship with a Nazi now living in Rio de Janeiro, played by Claude Rains, who falls in love with her. Alex, Claude Rains's character asks Alicia to marry him, and she agrees to do so because the government agency she works for urges her to do so. All she really wants is for Devlin to tell her not to do it and to profess his love for her, and even though Devlin is in love with her, he will not do that. One of the ways in which Claude Rains' character is sympathetic is in the way that he is open about his love for Alicia, that he can perform that act of openness that Devlin cannot Never mind that later, when he discovers that she's an agent, he tries to poison her. Now, there's a few things I'd like to mention, the first being the MacGuffin in this case, which is that what the Nazis are hiding in their mansion in Rio are champagne bottles filled with uranium ore. Here's Hitch from a 1973 interview.
2: And I thought of the idea they were collecting samples of uranium 235, from which the future atom bomb would be made.
0: And here he is with
2: Francois Truffaut. Ben Hecht and I went over to ben see
9: et moi-même, nous avons été voir
2: at, the, at Caltech, which is the big uh, uh, Institute of uh, Technology of California, Caltech. at Pasadena, à
3: Pasadena,
2: to meet Dr. Milliken.
3: Pour rencontrer le Milliken.
2: At that time, the leading scientist in
3: America. And
2: we were shown into his office. Un Our d'autres first d'autres question d'autres was, Dr. Milliken, Dr. Milliken, how big would an atom bomb be? And he looked and Il said, do you want to get arrested?
9: <laughs> do
3: you want to get me arrested? <laughs>
2: And then you spent an hour telling us how impossible it would
3: be.:
0: And this is Mary Stone, Hitchcock's granddaughter, finishing up that story in the special feature "Once Upon a Time."
3: He loved telling the story that after that, he was followed by the
6: FBI. He, you know, and he knows he was on the FBI's list as a potential, you, know, they didn't know spy or whatever. But to him, that was very exciting.
0: Here's what Donald Spoto has to say about the MacGuffin.
4: The MacGuffin, the excuse for plot development, was uranium ore, which didn't interest Hitchcock at all. Hitchcock never wanted to make a film that was topical. He never wanted a film that was about something so timely that it would be dated by the time it was released.
0: Another famous scene in the film is the kissing scene between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman it's
3: nice out here
0: let's not go out for
3: dinner let's
5: stay here we have to eat what well, you need here i'll cook i
10: thought you
3: didn't like to cook no i don't like to cook <laughs> but i have a chicken in the icebox, and you're eating it
5: what about all the washing up
0: that here's film scholar david boardwell from the special feature Powerful
9: Patterns. The sizzle was turned up in Notorious. The Hays Code warned against, quote, excessive or lustful kissing, end quote. From me? In a blow against censorship, Hitchcock provides two and a half minutes My of close up necking. Right? The production code limited a kiss to three seconds, so Hitchcock has his lovers share brief kisses. But the kisses are so plentiful, and they're delivered so playfully, that a teasing, erotic charge is built up. Devlin and Alicia locked in a tight embrace, kissing and clinging to each other, make their way balletically across a room. They even sustain their clinch through a phone conversation. The result became one of the film's high points, both at the time and ever after. Dorothy Kilgallen, who called them, quote, the most relentless kisses ever recorded on celluloid, end quote, went on to remark, let's face it, long after the storyline is forgotten, Notorious will be remembered as the picture in which Ingrid Bergman gnawed at Cary Grant as if he were a pound of fresh caviar. Any audience that sits through it, without murmuring at least, is darn sophisticated or dead.
0: And here's Ingrid Bergman herself from a 1971 interview.
3: Hitchcock used to be wonderful with me because he used to listen to all my arguments and you thought you'd had him, he didn't answer, just sit there and listen and listen and listen. And you said I have got him now, he's on my side now. And then when you finished, he said, I get your point. Now, do exactly what I told you to do and fake it. <laughs> Where are you going?
5: I figured I'd stay in. i have to telephone the hotel, see if there are any messages.
3: Uh, Hitchcock was very clever and invented a love scene with a kiss that became famous in those days. But a kiss couldn't last more than two seconds, I think it was. It had to break. This is a very strange love affair. He couldn't be in a horizontal position, even with clothes on. And he invented this thing that they tried to cut, but he won because not one kiss was longer than two seconds. But there were so many of them, you see.
0: Another famous shot is the crane shot at the party at Alex and Alicia's house. Alicia has stolen a key from Alex's key ring. And the camera starts way up on the second floor, looking over down into the foyer. And it tracks all the way down until it gets to a close-up of Alicia's hand holding that key. This is a little bit long, but I think it's worth listening to. This is John Bailey, cinematographer on Ordinary People, The Big Chill, and Groundhog Day, talking about that scene. From the short feature Glamour and Tension on the Notorious Criterion Collection DVD.
10: The whole sequence tracking Ingrid Bergman stealing the key
2: Nothing will happen to
10: give him any full The key it almost comes to life, it's a dramatic element. And the key shot down into her hand from a high angle crane shot is one of the most famous shots in Hitchcock's films, and with good reason, because it was very difficult to execute technically, which is why you don't see a shot that ambitious very often. Today, basically all cameras, whether they're film or uh, digital cameras, are essentially reflex cameras. What we see when we look through the eyepiece is what we get. The older cameras had a viewfinder that you framed your shot in, but that is not what the camera is actually seeing. You would set up a shot looking through the lens, but when you actually did the shot, you had to rack the camera over so that the film itself lined up with the lens, but you couldn't see through the lens. It was black at that point. So the way you determined the composition was there was a side finder. The difference between what the lens actually saw and what the operator saw through the side finder was called parallax. When the object that you're photographing is far away, the side finder would kind of move in closer to the lens so that at a distance, there was very little disparity between what the lens saw and what the side finder saw. As you moved in close, the side finder would displace more to the side. And so it became more and more awkward to actually see what you were getting. And the operator could only determine sometimes whether he had the accurate composition at the end of the shot. When the director yelled, cut, nobody would move the camera would be racked over into the viewing position. The operator would look at the lens and decide whether the shot was a properly composed and whether it was in focus. Okay. Now that was not such a big problem when the camera was dollying on the floor because the camera assistant for focus could set marks on the floor, determining the distance and rack the camera lens appropriately. When you're on a crane floating in the air, it's much more difficult. So this great shot starting at the top of the staircase and going down into the extreme close-up of the key in Bergman's hand, most of the camera move down happens in this sort of nether space that is kind of undefined. So what happened in this shot, as you get close to her hand, she gets pushed to the extreme right side of the frame and the entire left side of the frame is empty space. As you get right to the end of the shot, she comes back into the center because the camera operator knew what the final composition should look like. But you'll notice if you look at the shot carefully, eight or 10 frames right before the camera stops, there's a little buzz in the focus. The camera operator would not have been able to know that. And that is a very common thing you see with crane shots in this pre-reflex camera era. There's
0: so much more that we could talk about in this film. There is, for instance, this quote, from Angelica Jane Bastian, in her article, The Same Hunger, which is included in the liner notes of the Criterion Collection. She writes, Notorious becomes a consideration of what happens when a woman's sexual history frames the totality of her identity. And then there's this quote from Donald Spoto in Spellbound by Beauty. The basic concern of Notorious is a twofold redemption. A woman's need to be trusted and loved, which will enable her to transcend a life that has become empty of affection and riddled with guilt, and a man's need to open himself to love, which will enable him to overcome a life of severe emotional repression. Both are intriguing comments on this film that really deserve much more than a mention. But I think we'll pretty much leave it there, except I do want to quote Donald Spoto talking about how drinking is used in this film.
4: As a motif in, in films or in any form, people understand that people drinking together is a sign of unity among people and of celebrating an occasion or a person. All the drinking in Notorious is either alcoholic poisoning or finally, lethal poisoning. It's pushed to its extreme. The people in the beginning who are drinking are drinking far too much and they're drunk and some of them pass out. There's a logical development from that to the poisoning with arsenic. And Hitchcock doesn't have to use the words, and he doesn't have to show us the villains pouring arsenic out of a bottle into coffee cups. Overstatement infuriated him. He presumed that adults were watching the picture.
0: And I again want to mention that Alex ends up becoming a somewhat sympathetic character. Even though he's a Nazi villain who tries to poison his wife. And you can attribute a lot of that to Claude Rains. Here's the scene where Alicia and Devlin try to cover up their subterfuge by pretending that they are having an affair behind Alex's back. Of course, they both actually do love each other, and Alex senses that.
3: Someone is coming. It's Alex, he's seen us.
0: Wait a minute. I'm gonna kiss
3: you. No, he'll only think we
0: What I want him to think.
2: You'd better stay upstairs, Joseph, if they may need you. Yes, sir. Oh, Dad,
5: Dad. Push me away.
2: I'm sorry to intrude on this tender scene.
3: I couldn't help what happened, he's been drinking.
2: So he carried you down here?
3: No, please,
5: Alex. You love him?
3: No, of course not, please go.
5: For what it's worth, as an apology, your wife is telling the truth. I knew her before you, loved her before you, but I wasn't as lucky as you. Sorry, Alicia. Please go. Good night.
0: And here's Donald Spoto again.
4: I think Hitchcock frequently made villains sympathetic never more powerfully than with Claude Rains in Notorious. I think he made him sympathetic as a foil to the awful things that the so-called heroes are visiting upon poor Avisia.
0: And this is director Stephen Frears from the Once Upon a Time special feature.
2: The real thing is why Claude Rains decided to play it sympathetically. In other words, he was the villain, he was a Nazi, and he chose to play it on this very you know, on a level that you wouldn't have expected. You'd expect him to play it as a sort of horrible fellow, but actually he was very sympathetic, and so that when, as it were, Ingrid Bergman is betraying him or exposing him or whatever, you feel rather sorry for him, and when he has to go and face his terrible mother and those dreadful people at the end, it upsets you. So it's much more... It's more to do with emotion than you would expect a film like that to be about.
0: Oh, and one more thing. Here's Hitchcock talking to Truffaut about the height disparity between the shorter Claude Rains and Ingrid Bergman.
2: There were occasions when I had to yeah, always yes, put Claude Rains on a box. Oh, Rains sur une boîte. <clears throat> when they yes, they like the first shots, yes. yes. <laughs> otherwise his head would have been down there there.
4: there.
3: and uh,
2: uh, there was one occasion where I had to shoot a shot of Claude Rains coming towards the camera camera. and pan
3: him to Bergman
2: now out there on the floor, you can't mm. have any box.
3: Mm.
2: You see? So what I did was to That's have a, 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 a <laughs> plank of wood rising like that, oui. just out of the camera.
3: And
0: he walked, he
2: went higher and higher and higher. Et
3: like he monté, monté.
0: <laughs> Truffaut himself was very fond and notorious. Here's what he had to say. In his conversation with Hitchcock.
2: Notorious. Notorious.
4: In Notorious.
0: Probably the picture which I prefer of all the black and whites. Wow.
4: It's the
3: quintessence of Hitchcock. to me. It's perhaps a picture where one senses a. Exactly. That everything fits in. There's least uh, overlapping. Everything fits in. Exactly, and, as you with find it. Dessins and with the drawings as well. That is, that in an animated cartoon, it couldn't be, have been more precise.
2: No, no, when it was uh, uh, economic, that's
0: true. And in his review in the New York Times, Bosley Crowther said, Ben Hecht has written and Mr. Hitchcock has directed in brilliant style, a romantic melodrama, which is just about as thrilling as they come. Velvet smooth and dramatic action sharp and sure in its character and heavily charged with the intensity of warm emotional appeal. As a matter of fact, the distinction of Notorious as a film is the remarkable blend of a love story with expert thriller that it represents. We're finally almost ready to wrap up here, but since this is another Bradbury episode, I did want to mention something I heard in Tom Elliott's must-listen Twilight Zone podcast episode about Ray Bradbury's I Sing the Body Electric." Tom interviews Amy Boyle Johnston, who is the author of Unknown Serling. And she has plenty to say about the rift between Bradbury and Rod Serling that is worth listening to. She also has this comment about our last Ray Bradbury episode, Shopping for Death, which I did not consider. So let's hear what Amy has to say about that. And my thanks to Tom and Amy for allowing me to use the clip.
4: Bradbury wrote one of the most powerful feminist pieces i've ever seen produced for television in the 1950s for an alfred hitchcock presents called shopping for death Uh even when watching this today i am amazed at how much someone is representing the female point of view from the 1950s and the sense of isolation and desperation that serling did and alfred hitchcock in the introduction acknowledges this is ray bradbury who was not In everyday name then, he was a current author, Mm -hmm. and he had not reached the stature of Ray Bradbury then. Time to wrap it up
0: with Hitch, but once again, we have a bit of a mix-up here. My DVD set has what Martin Grams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion call the alternate narration. So let's hear it. That was pleasant.
2: It also reminded me of my youth when I was once a part of a vaudeville act called Dr. Spiewak and his puppets. But I never cared for Dr. Spiewak. He thought he was better than the rest of us. But so much for tonight's entertainment. Until the next time we return with another play, good
0: night. So I'm now going to read what appears to have been the original narration, and then we'll go to commercial, and then I'll finish it up. It appears that in this narration, Hitch had ventriloquist dummy, perhaps one that looked like him, though I can't find any images of this anywhere. Now, the dummy also has lines, so I'll do both parts. Anyway, here's how it goes. And so died Ria Bichinska. I hope you, uh... Tell him about the commercial, Mr. Hitchcock. In due time, Alfred, in due time. I hope you have... My name is Alfie. I'm Mr. Hitchcock's conscience. I bet you didn't think he had any. Alfred? Mr. Hitchcock has one, all right. He just doesn't pay me any attention, that's all. Alfred, I wish I knew how to turn one of these things off. A very irresponsible man, Mr. Hitchcock. He never pays the proper attention to the commercials, either. He spends all of his time with those frivolous toys of his. Are you quite finished, Alfred? Yes, sir. I hope you've enjoyed our play. There is a quote from Ray Bradbury in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion in which he says, Claude Rains was one of my favorites. I had the pleasure of meeting him in person on the set, but for the likes of me, I can't recall anything about the show except that it was wonderful. Jack Seabrook at Barebones e Zine quotes Ray Bradbury as saying, It was not a great half hour, but it was such a pleasure to see Claude Rains in something I had done. And the Pie Lady gives the episode a rating of WTF, all of which makes it sound like it's not particularly good. But I think it's a wonderful episode, dealing with love in all its forms. Jealous love, unrequited love, violent love, spurned love, tender love, secret love, and in the case of Baczynska, selfless love, because she leaves Fabian even though she still loves him. And it's a reminder that trying to sculpt someone to suit you and your idea of love doesn't generally work out so well. Whether you're Dr. Frankenstein building the Bride in Bride of Frankenstein, or Frank N. Furter creating Rocky in Rocky Horror, or Scotty redesigning Judy into Madeline in Hitchcock's Vertigo, or Fabian carving a lover here. You could even include Devlin's response to Alicia's professions of love in Notorious as a conduit that leads to her near murder by her husband. But that one ends up with them living happily ever after presumably. And now, if you'll bear with me, I have a rather long list of references to cite. Donald Spoto's Spellbound by Beauty, Dead of Night, The Twilight Zone, Seasons 3 and 5, 30 Rock, Season 4, Gold Diggers of 1937, Tales from the Crypt, Season 2, The Errand Boy, That Darn Cat, The Love Bug, The Apple Dumpling Gang, Freaky Friday, The Picture of Dorian Gray, King Solomon's Mines, Kid Galahad, Key Largo, Pat and Mike, House of Wax, The Magnificent Seven, The Dirty Dozen, Once Upon a Time in the West, Mr. Majestic, Death Wish, Death Wish Two, Death Wish Three, The Rocky Horror Picture Show soundtrack, The Invisible Man, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Phantom of the Opera, with the short feature The Opera Ghost. Here comes Mr. Jordan. Mr. Skeffington, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Casablanca, Caesar and Cleopatra, Lawrence of Arabia, Notorious, with all of those great special features, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVDs are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Edgar Bergen clip, The Great Gabo, the escape episode, Dead of Night, the clip from Batman the Animated Series, the clip from Gotham, the clip from Devil Doll from Hell, the Mystery Science Theater version of Devil Doll, Magic, The Mickey Rooney Show, the suspense episode Ria Bachinska, Machine Gun Kelly, Man with a Camera, the Reservoir Dogs clip, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown, Death Wish 5, The Face of Death, The Velachi Papers, the clip from Four Daughters, the clip of Betty Davis from The Dick Cavett Show, the clip from The Lost World, and the clips from Hitchcock trufo are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S J O E R D S M A A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time. Episode 21, Safe Conduct, starring Claire Trevor and co-starring Jacques Bergerac. And I promise that it will be a much shorter episode next time. And now here's me again as Hitch and his dummy Alfred to finish it off. Do you want to tell the people you'll be back, Alfred? No, sir, I'm not coming back. I've decided to have a bit of fun for a change. You see, you may have a conscience, but I don't. Why, Alfred. But don't you worry, our Mr. Hitchcock will be back. I'll see to that. Good night.